Hello, everybody. I'm Dwayne Mancini, and welcome to another episode of the Project MedTech Podcast. If you need anything from us or would like to suggest a future guest, you can email us at info at projectmedtech.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review. And you can always visit our website, www.projectmedtech.com, or follow us on LinkedIn. If you're enjoying this content, don't forget to check out our other podcast by searching MedTech Money on your favorite podcast platform or by heading to our website. MedTech Money is an interview-style podcast focused on demystifying raising and investing capital for MedTech startups. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Galen Data. Galen Data is the cloud for medical device makers. The Galen Cloud provides a configurable platform for device-to-cloud connectivity that is compliant to FDA, HIPAA, and CE mark standards. Built on 40-plus years of collective experience, developing compliance systems in the medical device industry, the company's goal is to make medical device cloud connectivity available to all at a fraction of the cost while shaving months off the development timeline. In this episode, our guests, Etienne Nichols, and I discuss how he supports medtech companies in implementing electronic quality management systems, the 2022 benchmark study they did this year on 519 medtech professionals done by Greenlight Guru, what headwinds medtech companies are facing, what the survey said about time to market, common errors on supplier management, opportunities that a lot of the professionals saw, the risk of cybersecurity, the importance of companies spending time and resources on employee growth, quality over compliance, and so much more. So without further ado, my discussion with Etienne Nichols. Medical innovation starts with medical discussion. Talking about the future and what comes next with Project MedTech. Okay, Etienne, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Dwayne. Good to be here. Yeah. So uh, you will be my second green light uh, guru person on the podcast since we started it. I had I had John on in like the 30s. And now by the time this one airs, this could be really close to episode 100. I, I actually didn't do the math. I should have before we started oh. talking. Yeah. So oh, this, man. Well, this, if I'm 100, this, you better tell me because yeah, <laughs> right. exciting. Yeah, this could be episode 100. Um, so, so anyways, uh, yeah, um, before we get started in what we're talking about today, just maybe give the listeners a brief intro into to who you are and, and what you do. Absolutely. So my name is Etienne Nichols. Uh, I started out as a mechanical engineer, worked in manufacturing and uh, engineering for a while at a neurosurgical um, plant. And we, we produce neurosurgical equipment. Then I kind of moved into a regulatory role where I was helping implement UDI DPM. Um, we use a lot of acronyms in the, you know, the medical device space. I'm sure you're <laughs> very familiar with that. But um, after working with that for a while, I moved into project management with a product development uh, group where we were working on a combination product. So a lot of different types of things that I've done. I am now currently working with uh, Greenlight Guru. So medical device guru is what my title is. I work with a lot of different companies, helping them implement their quality management system and get up and running um, with our software, as well as uh, make sure they're maintaining, uh, you know, following the regulations. I guess Are you I, working with companies of all sizes? Yeah, great question. So it is companies of all sizes. I'd say the, the majority of who I personally work with are smaller companies um, in the earlier stages. So we're very much uh, right there helping them get the uh, the SOPs together 
and uh, put put all those things together that they need to have a quality management system, um, as well as design controls. So that's probably one of my favorite design controls and risk working through those things. So. And for those, if you, I'm the second green light guru person, so um, if for those of you, the, the listeners who maybe didn't hear the first one, although you know it's hard to top John Spear, he's he's the the ultimate guru. Uh, but just so those of you who may not have heard the first one, um, green light guru is a uh, uh, a software that is a medical device um, success platform. So we cover everything from quality management system, um, things that you need for document management well as change management, Kappa, and so forth. So it's uh, the software that's really pulled me out of the industry. I'm a, I'm a big believer. <laughs> yeah, no, that's uh, really helpful to shine a light on because I think, you know, some people who are coming might have not been aware of, of, of Greenlight. So I appreciate that. Um, <clears throat> so so the, the reason we want to have you on is to talk about this survey you did of, of 519 leaders in the med tech space. Um, can you just talk a little yeah. bit more about what that survey was, who was, I mean, leaders, right? Are, are we talking small, large, you know, kind of just set the groundwork for what that, that survey looked like. Absolutely. So yes, you're absolutely right. So we surveyed 519 uh, leaders in the medical device industry. Um, so we call it the 2022 benchmark study, product development, quality management, and commercialization in the medical device industry. So it is our benchmark study. We try to do one of these every year. Uh, we can, I'll send you a link after this. Maybe we can put it in the show notes so your listeners can access this. But um, yeah, we 519 professionals, about 60% of those were quality and regulatory, about 26% were product development and engineering, and then some were um, manufacturing and operations, but the majority were quality regulatory with, uh, um, I guess, the minority you'd call product development. So this uh, this benchmark study, we, we looked at a lot of different things. We looked at the key issues that are affecting the industry, as well as the 2022 revenue outlook, which is... Um, it seems very strong. Uh, we looked at some of the headwinds and the opportunities that uh, pre-market startups are are, are kind of experiencing. Um, everybody has been affected by the pandemic, obviously, but it's interesting to see how different companies have, uh, have handled those different challenges. Um, so those are some of the things that we looked at early on. And then as we, as you go through the report, as you get a little bit deeper into it, we, it, we, it's not just reporting. We also show some of the uh, uh, the things leading companies are doing. They seem to be doing a little bit more um, efficiently and a little bit better than some of the other companies. So, yeah. Okay, awesome. So, so I'm curious. Let's just kind of take that stepwise. So, headwinds was one of the first things you'd mentioned, right? Um, yeah. In terms of of what you surveyed. So, so what were some of those headwinds that the industry was facing? Yeah, great question. Um, one of the things that we noticed was there's there's a big difference in the time it takes to get products to market. Um, so that was one of the things that we noticed. Time to market was one challenge. Um, another thing was uh, just the different tools people are using. And, uh, and so I, I don't mean to just, you know, well, let's just go ahead and talk about the tools that people are using. So some of those things are general purpose tools. Um, and when, when I say general purpose tools, I'm referring specifically to things that, uh, for, for example, for your quality management system, if you're still doing those things on Excel spreadsheets uh, and, you know, maybe in Word and just uh, um, a SharePoint site, 
the difficulty that some of those companies are facing now is the remote work. You know, everything is, uh, everybody's spread out, um, whether by choice or, or, or forced to do that. So how do you, how do you maintain part 11 compliance? And part 11 is that electronic signature or those, those things like that. So general purpose tools was one of the challenges that a lot of company are, are still facing. They're still using those things versus come, um, uh, purpose-built tools, uh, just things that are specifically built for, you know, the medical device industry. So that was one of the different things that we noticed. Um, but if I go back to the beginning, the, the first point I made as far as the difference in timeline to market. So we still haven't really, I, I haven't seen anyone just nail this down. How long does it take a class three to get to market? How long does it take class two? We did ask that question in this survey. And this was one of the headwinds that 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 seen, and then one of the challenges that it seemed that uh, they're experiencing. Um, we it's kind of broken out by percentage. About forty. Let's start with class three. For class three devices, about forty-seven percent said it was taking three to five years to get to market from design to design transfer. Um, about twenty-three percent one to two years, which I was actually surprised by that. And then if we go to class two. And stop me if you have a question, you know, I'll just keep rolling. But uh, for class two, it flipped 48%, took about one to two years, and 37% was three to five with a smaller portion taking um, um, much longer than that up to, you know, gr greater than eight years. Class one was actually very similar to uh, class two, 47% being about one to two years with about 14% um, three to five years and a few a little bit longer than that. So time to time to time to market was a big big problem for everybody <laughs> yeah yeah so i i think the um 47 in the class threes place uh, especially for ones that are pmas uh the people who yeah. said one to two years i think are are incredibly off it must have been a class three that was a 510k um but, well, but, but let me uh, let me correct it. so 47 was three to five yeah <laughs> Yeah, so the 47 that said three to five, for a PMA, probably accurate. I, I would be willing to bet, though, that they're even off by a considerable, a, a good chunk. Um, you know, it, it, and, and, and also, like, if you look at inception of company to market, like actual commercialization, I, I, I think people would be shocked about how much longer that probably is because there's a lot that has to go into that um there's a lot of market research there's a lot of talking there's a lot of tinkering i mean there's i i, I feel as if right <laughs> <laughs> yeah you're, you're 100 yeah. right so um, that 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 ramp up is uh it's really something when you look at the the history of a company. You, I mean, you nailed it. It's an elegant term. The inception of that company. Where where does that fall? That's a gray area. Is it when you first had the idea and you mm -hmm. started tinkering, um, or is it when you formed an LLC and started your design controls? It's a good question. Yeah, yeah, and I think too. You know, like these are the things. Maybe for internally. Um, uh, um, in the med device industry, they're not as important, but from a public standpoint, it, it is really important for the public to understand. And that's why, you know, like a lot of people, when I was in, um, uh, doing my master's program, they'd say, well, you know, you want to take a drug to market, it's 20 years. And, and, you know, the FDA would say, oh, it's not 20 years, it's this and that, but it's like, well, no, 
you're talking about the regulate the regulatory part of this. There's a lot that mm. comes before that. So I think for a device, you know, for people to understand how hard it is to take a uh, a new heart valve to market, it's important for them to understand. It's not just you know three to five years. It's probably ten, right? And so um, yeah. Anyways, that's that's yeah. really cool. So 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 tools time to market. Was there any other headwinds that were mentioned? Yeah, a couple other things. So supplier management, it seems like an obvious thing. No matter what industry you're you're in, you've likely been impacted by, you know, your supplier and lead times, things like that. Um, that was another thing. And then maybe a subset of that general purpose tool versus otherwise, um, we specifically asked about um, traceability and your ability to maintain traceability. Uh, so a larger majority or a larger percentage said that they were able to maintain traceability than we've seen in the past, but it still seems to be about um, 41%. So the ability to, or, or the confidence to say, yes, we are able to maintain total lifecycle traceability, only being 41%, being very confident is still you know lower than we'd like it to be, considering traceability is a, a very big deal. Mm -hmm. but those are, those are some uh, of the biggest sorry okay <laughs> um with that supply you know you're all good I, there's 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 a little bit of a a, a delay because of the bandwidth i think so um it's all, it's all right though but for but for supplier management um this is a piece that probably got amplified during during the pandemic um but but even like not not talking specifically about pandemic times, but just normal times. I used to see a lot of companies fail in this respect. Um, can you just talk about some of those common like errors or, or what causes some of these companies to fall short on supplier management? Um, like what are some of the things that you just see common errors? Yeah. So supplier management is interesting because there's a tendency for them, for the companies to look at those, uh, those suppliers. It's just, they work for me, you know, and, and I will deliver. It's a one way street. I send them the information. They do my bidding, you know, but, uh, that, that may be the, the thought at first, when you start to get into this, a medical device company is typically low enough volume that you don't really get to boss them around. Um, you really need to treat them as a partner. Uh, so companies who don't have that partnership relationship, um, and aren't maintaining those supplier agreements, or maybe they're not, um, maybe they don't have that quality agreement in place. Um, those are some of the things that are going to be potentially detrimental to a company if, if they aren't vetting out their suppliers properly. Um, one other thing I would say is um, a lot of times that a, a company may not do a good job coming up with an alternate supplier. So you do need to have, you know, a good process for those alternate suppliers. And that goes up the chain. There's there's upstream effects of that. You need to put that into your design controls. If you're going to be verifying um, a different part, um, that needs to be in your verification plan, needs to be in your bill of materials. Uh, and then you have to have those supplier agreements in place, whether it's a, um, depending on the criticality of the supplier. So there's a lot that goes into that. But the best companies are treating those like suppliers, bringing them in, bringing them in early and uh, having that kind of partnership relationship, even during the design process. Okay, great. And so <clears throat> those, those were the headwinds. Um, what were the, 
what, what, what came after there was like, there was a couple other things you had named, right. That we, we kind of took from this survey and I was trying to write them down, but I, I, I missed it. So it was headwinds. And then what was the second one? Uh, some of the, um, tailwinds, some of the things that some, uh, opportunities, I guess yeah. might be a good word for it. Yeah. Okay. And it, it's yeah. really, so what were some of the findings there? Yeah, it's really two sides of the same coin. So um, we're seeing we're seeing great innovation in the industry. Um, some of the uh, the revenue outlook really looks strong. So when we interviewed some of these companies, one of the questions we had is, you know, what is your company's revenue outlook for 2022? 34% of those expected strong revenue growth. Um, 46% in, in expected at least modest. So uh, there were, it was much less than half, less than a quarter actually expected to, uh, to, to regress. So that was a very good thing okay. to see as far as the industry goes. The new technology that's driving growth and driving some of the innovation, that's, that's also exciting to see. Um, I was actually surprised to see this. About 26% of the people um, we interviewed look like they're starting to use technology like Bluetooth enabled devices. Um, about a quarter of them are starting to use AI and machine learning. Uh, and then there's, you know, kind of uh, the 3D printing that's coming coming to the forefront as well. So a lot of innovation in, in the industry coming from other um, other industries trickling into the uh, the medical device industry is exciting to see and is is driving a lot of innovation and growth. Oh, that's really cool. Um, <clears throat> so just making a few notes here. Um, yeah. So the, the Bluetooth connectivity, right? Um, AI, machine learning, which is which is really interesting as well. Um, can can you talk a little bit about some of those quality concerns that that you see as a quality engineer um, with connectivity, Bluetooth, cloud, AI, machine learning? Right. It adds a whole another layer to risk. Um, so so. Yeah you know, as you're going through defining risk, right? There's always, with a lot of medical devices, it was fairly simple, right? If this this device fails, does a patient die? Do they get injured? You know, what is it? Now there's this other layer of data and this kind of thing. So how do you kind of walk through that process of, okay, now it's not just hardware, I guess, it's this other aspect. <laughs> That's a great point. Um, it's absolutely true. So cybersecurity is one of the things that, uh, well, the FDA actually just issued a draft guidance on this just a few weeks ago. Um, still up to debate as well as to whether that draft guidance is uh, is going to change drastically or if it's going to stay this, the way it is. But that is one thing that um, software as a medical device and medical device who use software, software in a medical device, they're going to have to be a lot sharper on this cybersecurity in the future. Um, you know, in the past, I think we looked at our devices a little naively thinking, okay, we're, we're a medical device. We are, you know, we're trying to improve the quality of people's lives, which is true. And, uh, and with that, the assumption seemed to come, well, nobody's going to target us, you know, for a hacking, for example. Um, they're not going to try to hack our devices because we're, we're good people. Why would they do that? Well, it's not the case. So cybersecurity is definitely something that we need to be considering. So that intentional or un unintentional misuse, um, that's definitely one of the uh, the gaps 
in the, in the industry that I, I see as a potential downfall. Okay. All right. Um, the draft guidance on cybersecurity was released just recently. Like, are you, are we talking about April? Yeah. Yeah. Just a few weeks ago. Um, I don't have the name of that, but I can send you a link after this and we maybe we can put that in the show notes. Uh, yeah. Comment period is still open at, at the time of this recording anyway. Yeah. 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 So just for everyone listening, we're recording this May 3rd and so it probably won't be released in, until sometime in, in, in June. But um, uh, anyways, just for everyone's time frame of <laughs> the dates we're talking about here. Um, okay. And so um, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Um, what about 3d printing? I think like for me there right before COVID 3d printing had this, like all of a sudden you were hearing about people doing a lot of 3d printing. And then honestly, like it's kind of gotten buried a little bit, um, because of AI connectivity, COVID diagnostic, like it, it, it's almost, it almost like, and this, we talk about this frequently, um, with, with startup companies, but when you're commercializing a product, your window is constantly opening and closing. And, and if you don't time it just right, you might lose your window for a couple years and it might open back up, but you, you know, there's just a lot of dynamics that you can't control. And I feel like 3d printing maybe caught the the brunt of that a little bit, um, where like it had a brief stint in the light and it got shut down really fast because of COVID. Um, but you know, now that things are settling down, it can make its comeback. So, so I guess, you know, what's your kind of status update on 3d printing? Cause you mentioned it. So I'm just curious, you know? Yeah. It's, it's one of the top three that we noticed as far as uh, tech that's driving growth and innovation. And you're, you're right. There is a lot of debate as far as the uh, the usefulness or the future of 3D printing, um, I, I don't think anyone denies the usefulness. Uh, it's it's the economic factor that's that's tough sometimes. So, if you look at you know versus the 3D printing versus let's say injection molding, the injection molding has a much higher upfront cost. But in the future, you know, six months down the road, once you get those uh, the steel cut and everything else, um, the machine's up and running, IQQPQ'd. Um, it's pennies to, to produce those parts. Whereas 3d print, you have a, you know, maybe the initial design uh, cost and just how you're going to orient the part. But then from then on, the cost stays the same. It's pretty fixed as far except for your material cost. So there is a difference there. Um, but where I'm hearing a little bit more use being uh, kind of, or, or emphasis placed on the 3d printers is in the physician's office itself. So there are some, devices that the potential could be um, for fixtures um, or for, um, I don't have a, a great example necessarily at the moment, but um, where it could be used in the clinician's office and they could simply print the, the medical device and go on their merry way. So uh, when I say it, a little bit of debate, how do you, how do you put good manufacturing practice in place when you have a you know the machine in the clinician's office you don't have manufacturing engineers monitoring it necessarily how does that work exactly so there there is some some interesting things going on there the fda is uh coming up with guidances around uh 3d printing as well so it's it's not being completely buried but you're right you don't hear as much about it but um there are a lot of there, there are factors um working in the background and, and i'll i'll give a shout out to form labs 
because Formlabs actually uh, um, did a lot of biocompatibility with a lot of their uh, materials. So um, there's there's a lot of activity going on for 3D printing for medical devices. Okay, great. Yeah, no, that's re it's really helpful. Um, from a, you, you kind of touched on a little bit from like a quality side, risk management, regulatory side on 3D printing. How is how is that seen? I, I guess you know within yeah most like the FDA, the EU, because it's like for me when I was in biocompatible, when I did a lot of bio, that was my first intro into med, med device was being a biocompatibility expert and um, 3D printing, like the concept of it was hard for me to kind of think of, of like, well, how do you address this? Like if there could be variations in it, what about from your side? I mean, what is that kind of the same, same thing that you were worried about? It's uh, so the way 3D 3D printing is a way of manufacturing something. So whether you manufacture something on a Swiss machine or an injection mold or a 3D printer, the part itself is the thing that you need to be concerned about. That verification, um, that validation on the device itself needs to take place. So that's that's one thing. But you're you're right as because there is a different. I guess the geometry, the crevices, things like that, that could be a potential for biocompatibility. I know the EU is focusing a lot more on that um, that testing on the part specific, not so much on the material. It, it doesn't want that um, that testing just done on the material. It wants it more part specific. So that is going to, uh, um, that could actually level the playing field for 3D printing. But as far from a quality management side, I do hear some, Let's, let's just use an example of like an orthopedic surgeon. Maybe they have a, a knee that they did a traditional CNC milling operation on, and, and that's how they produce their part. Maybe they want to go to a 3D printing operation. Um, is that a, 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 a big enough change that it's a different part? Well, if the part is identical, um, the way you manufacture it, you know, th think about it from that perspective. If, if you do it on a lathe versus a vertical mill, does, is that is that a different part versus a 3D print and a vertical mill? So I say that to say, you know, we look at it as as subtractive versus additive manufacturing, but eventually I think it's just going to become part of manufacturing. Where the concern in my mind is, is previously you never would have brought a CNC mill into a doctor's office and, and expected them to operate it and uh, manage it, have those good manufacturing practices. Now... How, how are those quality, uh, how, how are they going to maintain quality and uh, maintain, you know, part compliance, part to part, and uh, um, make sure that the process variability doesn't go out of spec, things like that. Those are the things that I would be concerned about because 3D printing does offer that, um, offer that opportunity for, um, you know, not as much control on that machine. Right. Sense. Okay. That makes <laughs> kind of rambled a little there. It it, it it does. Yeah. No. No. It's not. It, it it's you know it's it's questions that I had. Just that's not my space, right? Yeah. Um. And so, uh, no. I think that was that was that was very helpful. Um. So you, we we talked about headwinds, tailwinds. Was was there was there there was I think there was a couple more right that came there, from from this survey. <laughs> yeah, there probably yeah. are. Let's see here. So let me think. Yeah. I'm just gonna pull up a few notes myself. Um, yeah. Yep. The uh, the 
one of the things that we're seeing is is a positive. You know, there's there's a lot more okay. companies um, really dedicating and uh, um, uh, devoting more time resources to training to their employees. So I think knowledge of the industry seems to be increasing. And uh, that's actually something one of Greenlight Guru's personal missions is to, is to increase the, the knowledge of the industry. So we're seeing people having a, a greater focus on quality, which is good. Um, there's still, I, I don't know, it's likely the, the majority still are worried about compliance over quality. Um, but that is definitely a good thing. We're, we're seeing a lot more um, on that. Um, as far as uh, specific okay. tools. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, please. I was going to say, hold on a minute. There's, there's, there's two, <laughs> two great things there. I want to okay. come back to one compliance, compliance over quality. Um, but let's talk about uh, um, more companies dedicated to employees, like educating and training. Um, I think this is a, this is a really crucial piece and that some companies fall really short on. I will plug my old company that I used to work for. NAMSA was very good at it. Um, and, uh, they enabled me to learn whatever I want, whenever I wanted, right? I started in biocompatibility. Awesome. They let me learn about regulatory reimbursement, clinical commercialization, right? Like the whole thing they enabled me to learn. And I think that the issue that some companies maybe fall short on here is it's the, it's like the question of, well, what happens if we train this person and they leave? And it's like, maybe the question you should be asking is what happens if you don't train that person? Right. And so, and they stay, uh, <laughs> the argument is like, well, and they stay right. I mean, or, or, and who cares if they leave, right? Like in my scenario, I left, but I gave them a really solid five years. And so, yeah. um, you know, I, I think there's like that argument too, of like, if they leave, it's, it's okay. I mean, if you got, good value while they were here from them. So, um, that comes up a lot. And, uh, I have not read about a company that, that doesn't embody this. That's in like the top 10 for, you know, companies to work for, or they have like a, an overly happy, um, staff. So, uh, anyways, you brought that up. I just wanted to mention that I'm assuming green light, uh, just from the people I know within the company, it is is probably embodies the educate, educate, educate. Um, and hey, if they leave to go do other things, that's okay. Yeah, yeah, it, it's true. You, um, and I, I'll just take this opportunity, if it's all right, to to plug one of our um, educational resources, Greenlight Guru Academy. Um, if your listeners, I can send you a link as well, but academy.greenlight.guru. We are, um, our goal is to educate the industry and, and lift the, the knowledge of the entire industry. So we have professors uh, and then uh, industry experts, people who've been in the field helping to develop these courses. The majority of them are free. We do have some paid, you know, content that is, uh, is you know, certifications, but um, for the majority, a lot of it's free. And I highly recommend going in to look at that. Before coming to Greenlight Guru, you know, I worked in these different, um, different, companies, Fortune 500 down to, you know, small startup and uh, um, in different roles, manufacturing to product development. A lot of people, we we saw the middle layer. We saw the SOPs, 
you know, that, that we were subject to. We didn't necessarily go upstream to look at part 820.30 design controls. We didn't necessarily go to ISO 1345, section 7.3. But if we had, it might've made some of those SOPs make sense, or it might've made those SOPs not make sense and give us justification to change those, maybe to streamline them. so because a lot, you know, if, if you have a company that acquires another company, oftentimes they'll have a, uh, a bulky, um, curmudgeon SOP system that might not necessarily fit, um, be as streamlined as it should be. So I had kind of a little rant there, but um, I'm definitely uh, uh, in favor of right-sizing your quality management system and your SOP specifically. So, but did you have a question oh, well, about that? <laughs> Yeah, we will. We will get to that one as well. This is another good one. Um, So compliance over quality uh, for someone who is not. Now, uh, I I understand quality to a certain level regulatory. I mean, there's there's some overlap there, but explain to me compliance over quality. And okay. like you, you, you mentioned the thought process of some people think of compliance over quality when maybe it should just, it should be, you think of quality, right? I'm guessing that's where you're going with that. Can you unpack this a little bit? To, to a certain degree. So both are required, you know, you, you do have to be compliant. You, and, and I'll use the phrase that I think a lot of us maybe have used or heard. Uh, you can have a device that is, it, it's very effective. It's very safe but it's not compliant. You didn't document things correctly. And you might make the argument, well, that's a quality device. Well, what if you have a complaint? What if you need to change a design? You don't know exactly why or how you got to this point. So you may have a safe and effective device that's not compliant, or you might have a compliant device. You guys you know, put all your documents in place. You documented everything. You were very careful about that, but you have um, a failure in the field that, that potentially hurts somebody. Um, you are compliant, but now you're um, you don't have a quality device, so they they kind of work hand in hand. The, the the regulations are there for a reason. ISO thirteen forty five is best practice. It's the international standard for a reason. Um, not every section applies to every company, but th- those are the best practices. Those are the requirements. You have to follow those. Quality is that striving for excellence, striving for um, a device that you would have no problem putting you know, using on your mom, your son, you know, your cousin, uh, put a face and a name to that person who's going to use that device. And that, that helps kind of capture the slippery subject of quality. Um, compliance is one thing it's required, but, but quality is something we should all be striving for as well. Okay, great. Um, okay. You brought up quality system, um, that's right size for you and where you're at with your company. Um, and then you also brought up acquisition. So the quality system is a crucial piece to a lot of startups in the med tech space being acquired by strategics. Um, can you talk about how you can build your quality system or, you know, just with clients you've worked with, right? How do you scale that? Because because most acquisitions in the med tech space happen post commercialization. I mean, again, I, I don't know the I don't know the stat, but between eighty and ninety percent of submissions every year to the FDA are five ten Ks, right? So they're not PMAs. Um, PMA mm-hmm. acquisitions can happen pre commercialization, actually 
I think stats show they 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 actually do happen more often than not pre-commercialization. Um, but for a 510k for most products, they're going to have to commercialize. They're going to have to sell their product before they could potentially be acquired by a strategic. How do you build a quality system? Or, or, or I guess it does that does that as you're building the right size one, does that thought process come in of, hey, we need to have a quality system that can scale and work for a commercial product, but also one that could easy, easily implement into a strategic because knowing that they are going to look at that during due diligence because they've been burned on it before, either a quality system didn't fit well going into theirs or a quality system was trash. And, and that was why they didn't acquire the company. So maybe talk a little bit about that. Yeah, no, that's a great, great point. Um, and you hit on a lot of points that are really valuable. So full disclosure, I personally am not an investor, but I do work for a lot of companies who are raising funds. I've um, been to a lot of conferences, talked on panels with a lot of investors and angel investors up to VCs. And so I've heard a lot of them talk about these things. So, um, and the, the, general, the, the general understanding is, if, if a company doesn't have a good handle on their quality management system, that's a devaluing factor. Um, if they don't, if they don't have an efficient quality management system, to your point, if it can't implement into an, a company easily, um, that's, that's something that, um, that, that, that's a, that's a negative mark. Now, I'll, I'll, let me use a, uh, an extremely, uh, an extreme case. This is kind of an edge case, but I, I have, there was one company that, um, I won't say the name of it, but they were producing um, a, a defibrillator that goes on an airplane. And uh, it, miraculously, you have to be under the FAA uh, uh, requirements and you have to be under the FDA requirements if you're going to be a def put a defibrillator on an airplane because it is under the, the, the um, aviation requirements and, and so forth. So they have their own quality management system requirements. And then you have the FDA QSR, of course. So that's that's a... A heavy load it's it's possible you know they they pull that off but what if that company that had put those two and married those two quality management system requirements together if that company had done that and then they acquire another company that's just you know maybe a subsidiary and maybe this new company company b is going to produce catheters well if you try to force that company to um, adhere to all of those upper level requirements, you know, all of the FAA as well as uh, 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 the FDA, that, that, that's an unnecessary burden for that co company. So that company may need to have its own QMS. So that's kind of an edge case, something that um, I've seen. But uh, if we talk about how you can streamline those things, um, engineers and I'm, I'm probably guilty of this myself, we mistake the word robust and when in reality it may be verbose. Um, and, and that's the case when you look at these, uh, these quality, uh, these different SOPs, those standard operating procedures. Uh, if it's not uncommon to go to a big company and see 30 page standard operating procedure. Well, you know, the, the bigger that procedure gets, the less likely people are to follow it. So um, certainly it needs to be, um, specific it needs to be applicable to your company but the requirements themselves if you look at fda's qsr um, part 820 it's only a few pages long uh and and your ability to to follow that it's 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 vague it's true it is vague and it's vague for a reason because it's supposed to apply to you know broadly to all different types of companies 
it's up to you to look at that and say, okay, this is how we are going to adhere to part 820 design controls. This is how we're going to um, implement our CAPA system and uh, maybe following ISO 1345 and point to those sections. But that sta those standard operating procedures, they don't have to be you know, 30, 50 pages long. Um, they, they need to be streamlined to the size of your company and uh, so that they can truly be followed. When they get, when they start mistaking robust for, for verbose, that's an audit finding wait, waiting to happen because there's a good likelihood you're not truly following something that's in those procedures. No, that's that's great. <clears throat> um, this is this is a topic that comes up frequently on the podcast, right? Because you know we're we're, we're touching at various things and in, in, in different levels, and and um, when we're talking to startups, you know, quality is just it's 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 really important. And um, but preparing for an acquisition or commercialization is 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 also really important. One that just doesn't impede product development and that kind of thing. And that's always this like line you dance of, of, well, you want good quality, but you also don't need what Medtronic or Johnson and Johnson or, or Boston scientific yeah. has. Right. So um, I think this is helpful yeah. for under, for people to understand the, the kind of strategy that goes into quality and regulatory here. Right. So, um, and I can, I appreciate I'll that, say one, that I'll say one more thing on that. Um, quality is, it's really something that needs to become part of the culture. So that's uh, that's actually one of the uh, the values that Greenlight grew is true quality. That's one of our goals is true quality in all that we do. So it's one of one of four. But the way I've seen some companies inject quality into their culture because it really does need to be something that is purposeful and uh, you I mean it's intentional or it's not going to happen because. It, I think we've probably all seen or heard of companies that look at quality, the quality side as a police, you know, and they, they can be a police. They, they put those guardrails in place, but they should be a partner um, if it's a department. But in reality, everybody should be focused on quality. And so how do you do that? I heard one company and I thought this was a great example. I, I, Valentium, I don't think they'd mind me saying because this is, this is super positive. What they, they actually do something uh, that like the design review. So they like to encourage small design reviews at all times. Um, just, you know, review my code, review my uh, review, some of the things I'm working on. Well, there's no incentive to do that. Just, you know, outside, uh, you know, why would I give up my time um, to do that for you? You know, unless you're my buddy at work or something like that. But, you know, I've got my own things I need to work on. I've got my own goals I'm trying to achieve. So what they recommend is said, well, you know what we're going to do? We're just going to say, if you guys can do a design review with each other over lunch, we'll pay for it. So that's that's encouraging them to have that you know that collaborative work and uh, strive for quality. That's that's incentivizing that collaboration. So I think that's one example how companies can inject quality into their culture. Yeah, that's great. That is awesome. Uh, and I think too the other the other thing with quality is understanding the other aspects of your company that quality touches and interacts with. I mean, this is something that you know we just we spend an exhaustive amount of time with startups talking about and, and, and it, it should be right. But it's, 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 Hey, how does regulatory influence quality influences reimbursement influences clinical strategy influences commercial? I mean, they all 
appear to be separate things, but they all interact. And changes in one, especially at an early stage, will affect the others. And I think if you have a good fundamental understanding at the beginning, it makes scaling a lot easier. Yeah. Um, because they just stay with you. So I, I love quality a part of the culture. I think it's really important. Um, well, great. So, so Eddie, is, is there anything else that I missed um, that you wanted to cover? Um, no, I, I know we kind survey? of hit on a lot of different topics. Um, I'll, I recommend yeah. looking at this uh, report. I, you know, I'll send the link over to you if you want to share it with your listeners. Um, it's it's a great report. Gives yep. you kind of a, a good glimpse into the industry. Um, maybe you can compare yourself. Where are we? You know, compared to these market leaders, um, how can we get better? There's a lot of lot of good tips in that in that report. It's not just facts. Um, gives you some actionable data. Yeah, no, it's great. Um, we'll include it in the show notes. So in the show notes, we, we generally include website, LinkedIn profiles, you know, but but we'll include um, the Greenlight Academy. I want to make sure we have in there. Um, we'll have Greenlight's website. We'll have your LinkedIn. We'll have the link to this uh, survey and report. Um, so, you know, depending on what people are listening to. Um, where they're listening this to at it's, it's usually up or down an inch and, and you can you can find all these links within there um we'll tag it in the linkedin post that kind of thing um but that being said yeah hang on for 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 one minute here we'll chat offline but but thanks so much for doing this this was great cool thank you Dwayne. thank you for listening to the podcast if you enjoyed this podcast please subscribe and leave a review if you need anything from the podcast, you can always contact us at info at Thanks for listening and have a great day.